Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, and the guys have some Bibles, so get their attention as they make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, they'll give one to you, and when I say give, as in gift, it's our gift to you, so keep that, bring it back with you each Lord's Day. Romans chapter 1. I'm glad to be back with those of you who are here in person in our auditorium, as I was absent uh, last week, like so many from our congregation have been primarily due to the Omicron variant, which has hit us quite hard in a short period. So the last few weeks, and again today, our attendance is, though more than last week and the week before, still substantially under normal. We look back to getting everyone back in February, and in the meantime then, as Pastor Larry mentioned in our announcements, we've scaled back all of our ministries for January to include only this worship service for the five weeks of this month. But on the few occasions when I cannot be here, I'm very thankful that we can call on the likes of Tim Miller, as we did last week from Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. Tim's a favorite here. He always does a fantastic job when he preaches. I was able to hear him via live stream last week, and I, like so many of you, was blessed by his, his message. Now, I know that many of you were as well because you told me. The best message I've ever heard. I wish we had good messages like that more often. No, no nobody actually said, said that. But that's okay, okay, because today's sermon's going to be really terrific. And I can say that without bragging because I've stolen its content from a book, really, called Gospel in Life. And I'm able to do a few one-off messages over the next few weeks because we had a few things interrupt the series that we're going through in the book of Acts. We suspended that series for a Christmas message. Then the COVID outbreak occurred that's temporarily decimated our attendance so that my planned state of the church address that I do at the beginning of each year had to be postponed. And then last week, as I said, I was not here. Next week is Sanctity of Life Sunday. So I'm going to do a message on that theme. The final week then of January will be another one-off message, possibly from the Gospel in Life book. And then starting February the 6th, I'll probably take two Sundays for the State of the Church address, and then we will get back to the, the book of Acts. So today, from the Gospel in Life book, and then pro-life message next week for Sanctity of Life Sunday, a one-off on January the 30th, and then the state of the church address to begin February. Now, related to that, how you choose what you're going to preach and when and all of that, there actually needs to be some thought that goes into that, as hopefully you can tell. But in our podcast uh, yesterday, Pastor Larry and I talked about that very thing, how it is that pastors go about selecting what it is they're going to talk about, what they're going to preach, and even the emphases that we're going to have within the sermons that we deliver and that's a question that comes up because I emphasize particular things always for a particular reason. Sometimes it's not obvious why I do that. And so that podcast might help you to understand that. And so if you've ever wondered that, I would encourage you to listen to yesterday's podcast. It's been my observation in now over 40 years of walking with Christ as an adult. After having committed my life to him at age 19... And now in nearly 30 years of pastoral ministry, in that time I've observed that many of us know how to become a Christian, 
But too often, we do not know how to live like Christians. Many of us have been taught how to be saved, to be born again, to become Christians. All the synonyms that the Bible uses to describe when we initially come to Christ. We know that we must embrace the grace of God in the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has paid for our sins, that he has perfectly obeyed God, and we are given what he has secured when we ask for it. When that happens, then we instantly become God's child, and we know that we should begin living differently. There may have been some very obvious issues in our lives that we knew we needed to abandon. There may have been habits in which we were engaged that we needed to cease. There may have been speech patterns that we needed to mute because they were unbecoming of a Christian. We began hanging out with people who've had that same spiritual experience. Or perhaps from a child, we grew up in a home in a church where folks had come to Christ and each had changed in particular ways that you could observe so that there were certain things you didn't say like those who were outside of the group, certain places you didn't go, entertainments you didn't indulge, all spoken and unspoken mores of the group, the group being your family and or your church family. Whether you grew up in that kind of environment or you came to it as an adult, you learned some things that were acceptable and unacceptable and you began to abide by them. And happily so. It was good for you to change your ways and, if growing up in church, to avoid those ways altogether. I grew up that way. The Pentecostal church that my dad pastored was part of something called the holiness movement. It rightly emphasized the fact that a Christian is different. The word holy means set apart, different. The list of things that were considered Christian included stuff we did, like attending church four times a week, yep, four times a week. Sometimes revivals that lasted for weeks at a time and well into the night. Bible reading, prayer, memorization of scripture, and so on. It also included a host of things you don't do. Dance, go to movies, women don't wear pants, don't listen to rock music, unless it's played backwards in a seminar on why you shouldn't listen to it. The truth is, I'm genuinely thankful for the emphasis on holiness, even if many of the particulars were not quite quite correct. But as we'll see, it could be harmful. And it was to many. You see, my church also taught you could lose your salvation by what by what you did or what you failed to do. So many, especially young people in the late 60s and early 70s, were having a hard time towing the line and thus having a hard time staying saved. One man, older than me, who grew up in my dad's church, told me that when he was young, he was told he was going to hell because of what he had done. And so he figured, well then, it's hopeless, so I may as well enjoy what I can. And he's been doing that his entire life. I was blessed to attend and graduate from a Baptist school that also emphasized holiness, being different. It had a lot of rules as well, but it taught rightly, I later discovered, that one could not lose his salvation by what he did or failed to do. But much on the list of do's and don'ts was the same. Attendance, reading, prayer, memorization, no dancing, no movies, no music, pretty much the same list. 
We didn't have the no pants on women thing, but many Baptist churches did and still do. Now, as I learned in school about the grace of God in salvation, such that I could not keep it myself or I could not lose it by what I did or by what I failed to do, I became so enamored with that grace, especially giving my lose-your-salvation lose background, that thankfully it never occurred to me that our mostly unwritten holiness code was somehow a way I maintained my relationship with God. After all, I had come out of the false teaching that my relationship with God is based on what I do, so the rules and regulations were not, for me at least, seen as the basis for my relationship with God. Some of you come from various legalistic kinds of backgrounds, so you can relate to what I'm saying. You found the gospel of salvation by grace to be liberating, not only at the time of salvation, but also as you lived out that salvation from day to day. Some of you have never struggled with thinking your relationship with God is based on how well you keep the rules because you were taught better before you came here, or perhaps, perhaps you've come to understand that since you've been here. But I've come to realize that many, many Christians misinterpret the emphasis on holiness. You've grown up in it, or you've come into it as adults, and you've dutifully and often happily conformed to the expected norms. And so you've put away certain bad things, and you habitually practice certain other good things, and you're holy in that sense. You religiously serve, and you attend, and you give, and you sing. But you're regularly joyless and angry and bitter and critical. There's a disconnect between your external behavior and your internal peace, and many of us sense that. And here's why. Because you've conformed externally, but not transformed internally. And you find then that your critical attitude is toxic. Your thoughts and sometimes words towards others are condescending. Your anger and your bitterness boil just beneath the surface, ready to erupt with the right stimulus, whether at home or at work or on the golf course, but almost never at church. Your attempts at change have been experiential. You sign commitment cards, you walk aisles, countless times you raised your hand at the end of the service to turn over yet another spiritual leaf and nothing works. None of it lasts. You struggle with the same things over and over for years and years. And it doesn't last because your decisions to do more of or be better than or be like so-and-so, all of them treat symptoms rather than the cause. And the people who are closest to you see that. If you have children, they see the hypocrisy. The difference between what we are at church and what we are at home, what we're like to their mother or their father. And they too will grow to be fake, or they may despise Christianity as fake and drop out altogether. One way you know that you're playing the conformity game is when your internal thoughts and attitude do not match your external presentation, especially when at church, or when your external behavior is one thing at church and another at home or at work. And here's another indicator. 
It's when we're resentful of our situation. Because behind every resentment is a sense of entitlement. You see, this is one of the many dangers of the conformity approach to a relationship with God. It often creates an expectation of reward. I do the stuff, and it should go reasonably well. And make no mistake, if you're resentful about your situation, it's because deep down you believe you deserve better. And that's the opposite of gospel-centered thinking. Do you remember what grace is? Undeserved, it's a key word, undeserved favor from God. But the performance treadmill that is the conformity approach says, I performed, so now where's the payoff? And then it's very easy to seethe with resentment. So we've got issues. But God has the solution in the gospel. And today we're going to see that in gospel-centered living. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we do thank you that we are able to be in your presence. Those who are able to be here in person, more now than last week, more last week than the week before. We ask, Lord, that you would heal your people, that they will be able to gradually return, that we will all be back together in the next few weeks. But we thank you that we can gather in person those who are participating with us by live stream as well. And Lord, we've come to open your word, to learn, and Lord, to be indeed transformed internally. We ask you to affect that in us so that we can better serve you this coming week and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. So if we struggle with the same things over and over, and the problem is that we've been treating the symptoms rather than the disease, then what do we do? You should have received an outline on your way into the auditorium. This says, first of all, that if we're going to see real change in our lives, we must recognize the root. One reason we do not see lasting change in our lives is that we do not uproot the cause. We deal with the surface rather than dealing with the root. So it's like pulling up a dandelion rather than digging it up. If we don't get to the root, it will come back. Another way of saying it is we need radical change because radical means root. We need radical change rather than surface change. Those things that are displeasing to the Lord must be eradicated or uprooted. This means we have to look beneath the surface of our external behavior and onto our hearts and what motivates us to think and talk and act as we do. The Bible presents the root problem of our hearts as, believe it or not, idolatry. Now we don't see ourselves as idolaters because our definition of idolatry is too narrow. But scripture presents idolatry as not only making an image and bowing before it, that certainly is idolatry but rather as anyone or anything that commands ultimate allegiance from us other than God. An idol is anyone or anything we value more than God in any given moment. Now you'll remember that we were originally created to worship and serve God and to rule over His created things in His name. But instead, we rejected God and His purpose for us. And when the New Testament summarizes the fall of humanity into sin, it describes it in terms of idolatry. Romans chapter 1 explains the nature and power of idolatry. While verses 
29 to 31 mention a host of particular sins. And then verses 24 and then 26 and 27 mention sexual sin, especially singling, singling out homosexuality. These all surround the key verse that provides the root for all of them. The many breakdowns of life, spiritual, psychological, and social, they all come because of one thing, according to verse 25, idolatry. Verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and notice, and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. An idol is anyone or anything that's more fundamental to you than God for your happiness, for your meaning, for your identity. So ask yourself, what is your driving passion? Now it's hard to get a realistic answer to that just by asking because most of us will say, well, it's my family or my driving passion is God or my driving passion is other people. But psychologist Alfred Adler says, if you really want to know what matters to you most, don't just ask that question. He says, he says, look at your nightmares. Even for those who, like me, don't actually remember our dreams or nightmares, I'm told that we actually all dream. Some remember them and some don't. I don't, I don't remember mine, so if I'm dreaming, I can't tell you what they are. But even if you don't remember your dreams or your nightmares, we, we all still have things that are our worst nightmares. What thing, if absent, would take away your will to live? That's your idol. It's often a good thing. A good thing that's been turned into an ultimate thing. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. For example, if you're engaged, and then you break, and then you break up, it's going to bring grief if it was a good relationship. To lose that relationship will naturally be hard. But if that person had become ultimate to you, if they were the reason you got out of bed, then that good thing has become an ultimate thing and the breakup will not only be hard, it will be devastating and debilitating. And so much is our natural bent to make things and people primary. Here's what the prophet Jeremiah said, it's no use, I love foreign gods, I must go after them. Now that's the voice and language of Israel, and Jeremiah uses it to get across the fact that once we've come to believe that something or someone will make us happy, we must go after it. It's completely captured our hearts. The psalmist says this, they worship their idols, which become a snare to them. The prophet Ezekiel says their adulterous hearts have turned away from me, and they have lusted after their idols. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? You remember what he said. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your mind, all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And Martin Luther rightly said that this commandment is first in priority because all the other commandments flow from it. He said we never break any other commandment unless we first have broken this one. For example, consider why we break the ninth commandment against lying. Why do you lie? Well, because I'm a sinner, yes. But why in this instance do I lie and not in another instance? 
Luther says, because there's something more important to you than Jesus Christ at that particular moment. When it's approval, or it's money, or it's power, or comfort, whether it's any of those, there's something that's so important to you at that moment that you're willing to lie to get it. You lie because there's an idol of approval, or money, or power, or comfort, or the list could go on. And that's because under every behavioral sin is an act of idolatry. And under every act of idolatry is a failure to believe truth about God or ourselves. In other words, idolatry is a result of failing to believe the good news about God and the bad news about us. Which is to say it's a failure to believe the gospel. In psychological terms, an idol is where you get your identity. In theological terms, it's where you get your righteousness. You see, you wouldn't feel you have to lie. Now hear this. You wouldn't feel you have to lie if you were comfortable in your identity in Christ. And you wouldn't feel you have to lie if you were secure in the fact that Christ has given you his righteousness so you don't have to make yourself look better than you are. So we need to ask ourselves, all of us, how does my heart resist the gospel? What particular and characteristic ways does my heart resist the gospel, the truth about who God is and who I am? Unless you apply the gospel to the root in your heart, you will not change. So there are an unending list of idols that we can possess in our hearts. I've mentioned power and approval and comfort and things like control. And so in our hearts, we say without speaking, life only has meaning or I only have worth if, if power is your idol, if I have power and influence over others. Or life only has meaning, I only have worth if, if approval is your idol, then if I am loved and I'm respected by, and maybe it's a particular person or persons. Or life only has meaning, I only have worth if, if comfort is your idol, if I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life, or life only has meaning, I only have worth if, if control is your idol, if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of fill in the blank. And the list goes on. These are just examples. Power as an idol, approval, comfort, control. And if any of those are your idol, then concomitant with that, goes going with that, is the thing that is your worst nightmare about losing it. And it has effects on your relationships with people and on your own emotions. Just very quickly, if you seek power, that is, you seek success, winning, influence, your worst nightmare is to be humiliated. And the people around you feel used. And your problem emotion is anger because things haven't gone the way you want. If your idol that you seek is approval, affirmation, love from others, relationships, your nightmare is reject to be rejected. But it affects your relationships. People around you feel smothered. And your problem emotion is, is cowardice. You won't say anything to upset anybody because you want everybody's approval. If you seek Comfort as your idol. 
to have privacy, to have no stress, to have freedom. Then your nightmare is to have, to have stress, to have demands put upon you. People will feel then neglected, the people in your life. Your problem emotion is boredom. If your idol is control, that is, I've got self-discipline, I can be certain about what's happening and what's going to happen. I have standards and I meet them. Then your worst nightmare is uncertainty. The people around you feel condemned because you want everyone to conform to this control. Your problem emotion is worry. And so in your outline, I say, fill out for you in the blank. What's true for you? Life only has meaning. I only have worth if. If we're going to experience lasting change, we must recognize the root. And, second, reject it with repentance. Now, repentance is literally to change one's mind. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. But a change of mind about what? Well, since idolatry is false belief about God and or ourselves, then we change our thinking about who the Lord is and who we are in relation to Him. It's another way of saying we start thinking in ways that are consistent with the gospel regarding who God is and who we are. It was Martin Luther who set off the Reformation over 500 years ago now by nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg, Germany. The very first of the Theses stated this, that, quote, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. The whole life of believers should be repentance. Now that sounds very negative, but Luther didn't mean it that way. He's not saying that Christians won't make much progress in life. Instead, he was saying that repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. True, all of life repentance is the best sign that we're growing deeply and surely into the character of Jesus. True, all of life repentance is the clearest indicator that we are growing deeply into the image of Jesus. But there are different kinds of repentance. There's religious repentance and there's real gospel repentance. Religious repentance and gospel repentance are quite different. In religion, the purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy so he'll continue to bless us and answer our prayers. So in religion, we're sorry for sin only because of its consequences. Sin will bring us punishment. We want to avoid that, so we repent. The gospel, however, tells us that as Christians, sin can't ultimately bring us into condemnation, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. The main problem with sin after we are Christians is what it does to God. It displeases and dishonors Him. So in religion, repentance is self-centered, but the gospel makes it God-centered. In religion, we're mainly sorry for the consequences of sin. In the gospel, we're sorry for the sin itself. And also, religious repentance can easily turn into an attempt to atone for one's sin. We convince God and ourselves that we're so truly miserable and regretful that we deserve to be forgiven. But in the gospel, we know that Jesus suffered for our sin. We don't have to make ourselves suffer to merit God's forgiveness. We simply receive the forgiveness that's earned by, been earned by Christ. 
In religion, our only hope is to live a life good enough to require God to bless us. So every instance of sin and repentance is traumatic. It's unnatural. It's threatening. And only under great pressure, hear this, do religious people admit they've sinned. Only under great pressure because their only hope is their moral goodness. I'm telling you I've seen that over and over and over and over throughout the years. Professing Christian people who cannot admit their own sin. And it is invariably tied up in this whole matrix of their hearts and, and their thinking. In the gospel, the knowledge of our acceptance in Christ makes it easier to admit that we're flawed because we know we won't be cast off if we confess the true depths of our sinfulness. Our hope is in Christ's righteousness, not our own. So it's not as traumatic to admit our weaknesses and our lapses. While in religion we repent as little as possible, the more we feel accepted and loved in the gospel, the more and more often we will find ourselves repenting. Although there is some bitterness with any repentance, in the gospel, there is ultimately a sweetness about it. This creates a, a thoroughly new dynamic for our personal growth. The more we see our own flaws and sins, the more precious and amazing God's grace appears to us. And on the other hand, the more aware we are of God's grace and our acceptance in Christ, the more able we are to drop our denials, our self-defenses, and admit the true dimensions of our sin. The evangelist George Whitfield, 18th century evangelist, said this about repentance. God give me a deep humility, a well-guided zeal, a burning love, and a single eye, and then let men or devils do their worst. In that, he was giving a very helpful definition of the components of repentance, and I have them in the outline. That gospel repentance involves deep humility. So let's ask ourselves, ask yourself, have you looked down on anyone? Have you been too stung by criticism because you don't have the humility to accept it? Have you felt snubbed or ignored? Then repent by considering the free grace of Jesus until you sense decreasing disdain since you're a sinner too and decreasing pain over criticism since you value God's love more than human approval. Reflect on God's grace until you experience a deep humility and a grateful, restful joy. It involves deep humility and appropriate boldness. Have you avoided people or, or tasks that you know you should face? Have you been anxious and, and worried? Have you been rash and impulsive? Repent by considering the free grace of Jesus until there's no cowardly avoidance of hard things since Jesus faced evil for you. And there's no anxious or rash behavior since Jesus' death proves that God cares and watches over you. Reflect on God's grace until you experience calm thoughtfulness and appropriate boldness. True repentance involves deep humility, appropriate boldness, and fervent love. Have you spoken or thought unkindly of others? Have you been impatient or irritable? Have you been self-absorbed, indifferent, or inattentive to people? Repent by considering the free grace of Jesus until 
There's no coldness or unkindness as you think of the sacrificial love of Christ for you. There's no impatience as you think of his patience with you. There's no indifference as you think of how God is infinitely infinitely attentive to you. Reflect on God's grace until you show warmth and affection. And then lastly, true repentance involves godly motives. Are you doing what you do for God's glory and the good of others? Are you being driven by your need for approval, your love of comfort, your need for control, your hunger for acclaim and power, the fear of other people? Repent by considering how the free grace of Jesus provides you with what you're looking for in these other things. Reflect on God's grace until he becomes your joy and your delight. Colossians chapter 3 summarizes idolatry, saying, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, which amount to idolatry. Now, you'll only do that if you truly hate all of these things that are contrary to the character of God. The fact that you don't, if we don't hate it, means that we like it more than we want to please Christ, more than we want Christ. And so, friends, if we're going to have lasting change, we need to recognize the root, reject it with repentance, and lastly, replace it with rejoicing. We have to gladly and voluntarily replace our idolatrous thoughts and words and behavior with that which pleases the Lord. Not out of duty, but because our hearts are captured by something, no, rather, someone better. Several years ago, we did a study through the book of Philippians. We saw in it the faithfulness of the Christians in Philippi in giving of themselves and their resources for the Lord's work, and then we were challenged to emulate their example. They were people who were properly motivated. So rather than guilting and manipulating them into giving, the Apostle Paul could simply remind them of the truth that that they already knew about the Lord. So he said this in 2 Corinthians 8 about the churches in Macedonia, including Philippi. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Understanding the truth about our salvation and the resulting relationship that we have with the Lord should have a profound impact on our behavior. It should change our heart, which is the seed of our mind and our will and our emotions. It should restructure our motivations, our self-understanding, our identity, and our view of the world. It changes our hearts. Behavioral compliance to rules without our change is going to be superficial, and it will not last. And so the Bible says, the grace of God that has appeared, has appeared that offers salvation to all people, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. He saved us, Titus 3 says, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Now think of all the ways that you can say no to ungodliness. You can say no because it'll make me look bad. You can say no because I'll be excluded from the social circles that I want to belong to. You can say no because then God will not bless me. You can say no because I'll hate myself in the morning and have low self-esteem. And nearly all of these are really just motives of fear and pride, the very thing that also lead to sin. 
You're just using the same self-centered impulses of the heart to keep you compliant to external rules without really changing the heart itself. You're not really doing anything out of love for God. You're using God to get things, self-esteem, prosperity, social approval. So your deepest joys and hopes rest in those things, not in God. But hear this, friends. The gospel, if it's really believed, removes neediness. It removes the need to be constantly respected, to be constantly appreciated and well-regarded, the need to have everything in your life go well, the need to have power over others. All of these great deep needs continue to control you only because the concept of the glorious God delighting in you with all his being is just that. It's a concept and nothing more. Our hearts don't truly believe it. So our hearts operate in default mode. And Paul is saying in Titus chapter 2 that if you want to really change, you must let the gospel teach you, that is, train you, discipline you, coach you over a period of time. You must let the gospel argue with you. You must let the gospel sink down deeply into your heart until it changes your motivation and your views and your attitude. Then, when that happens, we can say no. You know why we can say no? Because we have a greater yes. You can say no because you have a greater yes. It was the 19th century Scottish minister Thomas Chalmers who said this, no one has ever changed a habit just by trying. The heart is so constituted that the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. So we need a new, greater passion. What you need is an overmastering positive passion for Christ. So Colossians 3.1 says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You need something like described in the story of Jacob's love for Rachel. He was told by Rachel's father Laban that you can have Rachel as your wife in seven years. <laughs> seven years. Here's what the Bible says. Jacob served Laban for seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. Didn't seem like work at all because of his love for her. If you have two guys on a line that are making widgets, both of them for 12 months, and one is told, they're both in rooms side by side, and one's in this room, and he's told, for that 12 months, that year, you're going to make $10,000. The guy in the next room is told, you're going to make a billion dollars. The one guy is going to come, and it's going to seem like nothing that year, isn't it? He's going to come with a song in his heart. He has an overmastering, positive passion. He looks forward to what's coming. He's thrilled that his life matters. Our lives matter in what we have, friends, and what we are, and in what we are going to become in Jesus. Do you believe that? When we fall into anger or fear, it's because of some idol that has you by the throat. 
And it means I've got to look at Jesus. I've got to look at all that I have in the gospel like Jacob looked to Rachel. To the degree you see Jesus losing everything for you, you'll see that as so beautiful that things that control you now will lose their power. Grace changes us. So we do good for goodness sake. For God's sake. So rejoice and rest in what Jesus has done for you. Here's your take-home truth. Lasting change comes only when we replace the idols of our hearts. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we again thank you for granting us the privilege of being before you in person, participating by live stream. Lord, it is a privilege. We have your word before us. Your word contains your gospel, your good news to us, telling us who you are, who we are, and how you have brought us together with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, all of that can be written on a napkin, can be memorized into a plan of salvation, and then can become the end of the Christian life for so many of us. Lord, I ask you to help me and help us to be people who plumb the depths of all that's involved in the gospel for us. What it says about who you are and all that you have done to bring us to yourself. What it says about the chasm infinite that existed between you and us because of our sin. And yet you have bridged it with the cross and the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us then to be people who think deeply about the implications of that. For every relationship that we have, everything that we desire, every emotion that we put forth, to ask ourselves whether these things are consistent with who we are in Jesus, the identity that we have in Him, the righteousness, absolute, full righteousness that we have because of Him. Lord, as we contemplate these things and seek to align our lives with what we profess, I pray that you will help us this afternoon and this week to then be people who are doers of the word and not hearers only. May the difference be manifest to those around us who previously have seen our toxic criticism and our our unhappiness and our seething anger. They see us now as changed people. And we're able to testify to what, why that happened because of Jesus and the good news of the gospel. Oh Lord, we ask you to change each of us because of the gospel, for goodness sake, for Christ's sake. And then Lord, as a result of that, help us to be effective witnesses to those around us who can see that change within us and ask us for a reason for the hope that we have within us. Go with us this week, we ask you as we do that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for our closing song.